0: You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Let's remain standing for the reading of the gospel. And again, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reading what Jesus said. Miserable again, like last week. Jesus is all over the place. He says, He says. I wouldn't have said this. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. We just go home now. We didn't do that very well. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Okay? To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. And from the one who takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be called sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, which we should all be very excited about. Be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Let's pray. Once again, Lord Jesus, short prayer, we can't do this. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't want to preach this message. I do, actually. It's very exciting. Jesus literally commands the impossible. And I want to start off by saying two things just so we can keep things very simple this morning. Number one, Jesus is talking to those who can listen is what it starts off saying. And so when he's talking about turning the other cheek, when he's talking about if somebody steals from you, give them more than what they took, when he's talking about those things, he's not telling somebody who's in a relationship where they're getting their brains beat in to continue getting their brains beat in. He's not telling you to continue to get abused. And here's the thing. He's not talking to the weak who already have this happening to them constantly all over the place. He's talking to those of us who have the ability to turn the other cheek. Some people don't. Some people don't have the ability to turn the other cheek because their whole body is bruised up from life. Some people don't have something that could even be stolen because they have nothing. So, Jesus is talking to those of us who have the ability to be able to turn the other cheek, to let something go. And so, I just want to say two things here. Number one, I want to preach on this in terms of the day to day punitive nature of the world. That coworker who kind of slights you a little bit, and you know she's doing it, but they're doing it in kind of a way where if you snap at them, they'll say, I'm just joking. Anybody know somebody like that who loads up insults and jokes and then you can't call them out on it because they say they're just joking? Am I one of those people? What do you mean? Okay. Maybe I'm one of those people. That person where when when they do something to you, you don't really want to get back at them fully. You just want to do enough to let them know they didn't completely get you. Salem, you're going to have to help me out here a little bit. I was expecting us all to want to be like Maximus Decimus Meridius from Gladiator. Has anybody seen Gladiator? You know the part where he's finally in the theater and the king who murdered his whole family shows up and he takes off, Russell Crowe takes off his mask and he says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north and true servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son and husband to a murdered wife and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Come on, does that not amp you up? You just wanna like pick a fight with somebody at that point, somebody mess with me. My name is Maximus Decimus Dandriano. Like we wanna do that. And Jesus says not to. Jesus says not to. Revenge is so sweet. How many have seen The Count of Monte Cristo? My gosh. Revenge is sweet, my dear count. I can't wait until we can taste it. Yes. Don't talk about me behind my back. I want to have that moment where I show up in a hot air balloon better than I was when you dissed me. Jesus says, no, you're not allowed to do that. He tells Maximus, now turn the other cheek. No, Jesus, you don't understand. Jesus, you don't understand. How are we supposed to live this way? When we seek to get something back from somebody who we feel took from us and understand, when somebody gossips about you, they took something from you, they took your security. They took your sense of peace. They took your sense of joy. When somebody wrongs you or betrays you or cheats on you or, or doesn't give you, show you dignity in front of other people, every sin is taking something. It's a, you don't just rob somebody of clothes or money. You rob them of their humanity when we do things to each other. And when somebody robs me of my humanity and I want to get it back from you, what I'm saying is you're my source of humanity and I need to take back from you what you took from me. The question I had when I read this text is, Jesus, where do I get the humanity in me to live when I'm being dehumanized and not take what they took back from me? Where do I get it if I don't get it back from them? And the story starts to kind of unravel for me in a good way and sort of pop in a good way because in this moment, the Joseph story shows up. Jesus says, love your enemies and turn the other cheek and bless those who curse you. And what better way to interpret those Beatitudes than to look at this Joseph story? Because if you read the Joseph story appropriately, Joseph never intends on forgiving his brothers until the split second he does. When you read the story carefully, first he has two dreams. Dream number one, he's a plant. And all these stalks of wheat are bowing down to him. And he's like, that sounds like a good dream. I'll take it, Lord. Lord, use me how you will. I will lead my brothers and they will bow down to me. I'm your servant. And then he has another dream where stars bow down to him. And he's like, well, every truth is confirmed, so let's do this thing. And he goes and tells his family, y'all are going to bow down to me one day. And they just huddle up like, we're going to throw them in a pit. And so here he comes. And his coat of many colors, which really in the Hebrew means his coat of long sleeves. It really probably wasn't a coat of many colors. I think we kind of put our own vanity in some of those translations sometimes. But he had a coat that was different than all of their coats. And they see him, and they throw him into a pit. And here's what bothers me the most. They throw him into the pit, and then they discuss what they're going to do with him. So imagine you're Joseph. You're in a pit. You can't get out. And they're like, so what do we do with him? And I'm like, uh, maybe not throw me in a pit. For starters, why are you deliberating now? You couldn't have figured this out five minutes before I showed up? You saw me coming eight and a half miles away. It's flat. Now you're trying to figure out what to do. It's like that person at Dunkin' Donuts who's been online for 45 minutes. They get to the front, and then they're looking at the menu. Why? You've been standing. What have you been doing? Figure this out before the point of attack, please. It's just like Dunkin' Donuts. I just ruined the entire Bible in like .2 seconds. They sell him. To Ishmaelites, which is really interesting when you think about it because Ishmael was supposedly Abraham's mistake. But Abraham's mistake comes back and redeems Abraham's legacy from a well. Don't sleep on your past. Even the bad stuff, Easter can get a hold of that and do something good with it. Amen? A splattering of applause from people? (laughs) That God can use our worst mistakes to come back and defeat the enemy at his own game? Come on. I'm trying, it's like really hard for me to be positive. I'm trying to be as positive as I can possibly be today. I'm in a suit. We're celebrating Easter. Every time we do a baby dedication or a baptism or a funeral or a wedding, you're celebrating Easter. And so let's just have a little bit of fun. Can we just try to have some fun? Joseph is in a pit. He gets sold into slavery. This is fun, right? No. In slavery, he's put in charge and then he gets falsely accused again and goes to jail. In jail, he's asked to interpret dreams. How annoying is this? I have a dream. It gets me sold into slavery, then put into jail, and now these two jokers need someone to interpret their dreams for them. Why are you all looking at me? Apparently the dreams I have don't work out. (laughs) Don't read it knowing the end. This is silly. So watch this. Joseph interprets two dreams. How many did he have? He interprets two dreams, and they both come true. Now watch this. When they come true, Pharaoh pulls him out of prison and says, now I had a dream. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream and gets it right. So now Joseph, listen to me, has interpreted three dreams. He didn't get his two dreams wrong It's just that when God gives you a gift, and you're still in the youthful infancy stage of that gift, you think you know what the gift is, but you haven't rightly interpreted it yet. He then puts you through some kind of agonizing, horrible trial, and in that trial, you learn to interpret the thing that you've been misinterpreting the whole time. Joseph interprets a total of three dreams, which is the number for resurrection. So Joseph has a resurrection in his ability to interpret dreams, and now his brothers show up. Oh, look who's here. This is the Maximus, Decimitius, Meridius moment. This is the moment that you wait for. It's Batman throwing Joker off the top in the actual good Batman movie. The original good one. Michael Keaton. And, and, and he keeps laughing even when he's dead, but you know you got him. Like, that's, that's this moment. And he's like, who are you? And they're like, uh, we're, we come from you know, Canaan and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, how many brothers do you have? Is your youngest one with you? Go get him. And go get your youngest one. But our father doesn't want him to come to Egypt. I don't care what your father wants. Bring him here. And in the meantime, you guys stay in prison. He's messing with them. He's doing what we would do without Jesus. He's doing it. He's he's manipulating them. He's twisting them. He's making them go back and forth from Egypt to Canaan. He's scaring them. And then he puts his chalice in Benjamin's sack, the favorite child, the only favorite child left, and says, go chase them down. And I think somebody stole my chalice. And they're like, nobody stole your chalice. Why are you so worried about the chalice for it? It's all about the chalice with you. Every time I talk to you, it's always about the chalice. Who cares about the chalice? They all empty their sacks, and there it is in Benjamin's. And he says, Bring him here, I'm gonna kill him. He's messing with them. He has no intentions of forgiving them. But multiple times, he goes by himself and weeps because something is happening in him, something is changing something, the words that Jesus will utter 3,000 years later are starting to be heard in the soul of Joseph. He's saying, maybe I have to bless those. Maybe I have to turn the other cheek. So watch. His brothers come back, and it says, and I love this, it says, Judah talked to him. And when Judah talked to him, something changed in Joseph. And Joseph reveals himself not as the vengeful one, but as the forgiver, and not just the forgiver, but as a servant, I'm not just gonna forgive you. I'm gonna provide for you. It's funny that it's Judah who talks to him and gets him to do that because I still think that praise has a funny way of filling God with compassion. It's why, and I have this debate with some of my pastor friends all the time who think you shouldn't get, you shouldn't tell your church to praise. You shouldn't tell them to jump because if they're going through it and they jump and get all sweaty and hot, they're still going to be going through it when it's done. And I'm like, well, I completely disagree with you. And also your church sounds boring. (laughs) But the point isn't what happens to us when we praise. Has somebody ever done something nasty to you and you act like you're happy just to let them think they didn't bother you, even though you're like absolutely mortified on the inside, but like you actually pull it off and you act like you don't care at all, I feel like in a lot of ways, that's what we're doing to the powers of darkness when we praise. You can hit me as much as you want. You're not gonna take my jump. You're not gonna take my shout. Even if I'm dying on the inside, you're not gonna get to see that. It's holy defiance, and I think there's something about that that makes God reveal himself. I think when he sees people like that, and I know this just being a parent. There's times where I look at Sophia, and she's annoying. She's really annoying, and I don't, I don't want to go pick her up. But then there's times where she looks at me with that face, and like I'd walk through fire to go pick her up. And I feel like when we, we praise is us making the cute face to God. <laughs> praise is our cute face. We should make it all the time because apparently, cute faces get you out of getting spanked all the time. All the time. That's it. One, two. Oh my God, you want some candy? You're so cute. I just. So Judah does that. Joseph reveals himself. But watch this Joseph has now reinterpreted his two dreams. By way of review, God gives you gifts. And you will initially misinterpret what your gift means until you go through something. And when you're going through something, it's in that trial that God will teach you to reinterpret your gift. Not change it, not get to use it, but understand the beginning of what it fully means. So what were Joseph's two dreams? Wheat bowed down to him. And stars bowed down to him. Is it possible that when he finally saw his brothers, he realized... Maybe wheat bowed down to me because I'm supposed to feed them. Maybe God didn't give me a dream of people bowing down to me because that would mean I would rule them. But wheat bowed down to me. Maybe I'm supposed to feed them. What did God say to Abraham? He said, I will make your descendants like the stars of the heaven." And Joseph saw stars bow down to him, not people. Maybe I'm supposed to feed you and serve your generations to come. Maybe God is now telling Joseph that ruling is serving. Now think about Jesus. When they strike you, turn the other cheek. I want you to see something here. There are two narratives that we can play by our whole life. The first one is the micro-narrative. Is that the first one? Good. The micro-narrative is the thing that's happening to you right now. It's your moment. Somebody, Dan Savage, gets up here and says, Pastor, thank you for all the hard work of putting the sermon together, and then backhands me across my face. That's my moment. My moment says, Dan, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to run, but I'm really going to give you two, like in Home Alone. One, two, ten. Like, that's... That's what my moment says. My moment says, I just got smacked in my face by Dan. Why? I'm going to hit him back. Or me, probably, I won't hit him back. I'm just going to destroy him with my words so he doesn't want to get up in the morning again. Like, that's, that's my talent. I was never really a fighter. I'd get into and out of trouble with my words all day long. Like, we always say, Franco, thank God you and I were not so much closer in age because you would have gotten into a lot of fights on my behalf. If I was walking around, my brother Frank, you see my brother Frank up here? If I was walking around with him all the time when we were growing up, I would have run my mouth, not like the micro machines guy at the end of the commercial from back in the day that talked a million miles an hour. I would have run my, he would have, one time I would have run it and he'd have been in the bathroom or something. And I'd be like, right, Frank? <laughs> oh, Lord. I totally forgot. Oh, yeah, Dan Savage smacks me in my face. That's my moment. Somebody gossips on you. Somebody gives a bad report to you to your boss. Somebody's taking extra breaks at work, and you're picking up the slack for it. Whatever it is, you all know your stories. Life is crazy out there. And your moment is a micro-narrative. It has to be governed by a meta-narrative. There has to be a bigger narrative governing our small everyday ones. And so there's something called the meta narrative. And the meta narrative is the gospel hope that in the end, God is going to make all wrongs right. So watch this Joseph in the micro narrative. My brothers put me in a well and sold me into slavery, and now they need me for food. Guess what they're not getting? I'm going to give them enough food just to have a snack on the way home, and that's it. Just to be obnoxious. His moment would say, my moment has finally come. But somehow, echoes of a gospel yet to be unfolding make their ways across the canon of time and hit Joseph. And Joseph realizes the micro narrative, my moment, says that they sold me here. But something in my soul is saying, God put me here. And they had nothing to do with it. So now he's in a tug of war between two narratives. And I was talking with Pastor Mark about this. And he said, I don't understand the part where Joseph says, God sent me here and you didn't. And that's when the light bulb went off for me. There's a narrative at play that transcends all of our day-to-day narratives. And Joseph without lying, can say you, on one level, in one narrative, you put me here. But on another level, you had nothing to do with this. And what does he say to them? He says, you meant to kill me, but it was so that I could give you bread and save you and your generations from famine. One day, we're going to show up in heaven And Jesus is going to see us show up like Joseph's brothers. And he's going to say to us, listen to my words. Joseph said, you meant to kill me, but it was so that I could give you bread. Jesus is going to say, you meant to kill me, but it was so that I could become bread. You thought you were killing me, but you were just taking me to the bakery and you were making the sweetest, most sustaining bread that you could ever possibly imagine. You turned me into bread. So now, go to those beatitudes. What narrative are we going to play by? Somebody wrongs me. In my moment, I'm going to wrong you back, or at least do just enough to let you know you didn't fully get me. But one day, me and the person who smacked me are going to be standing before the true and better Joseph. And we're both going to be standing side by side, equally guilty. And he's going to say to both of us, you meant to kill me. But it was just so that you could turn me into bread so I could feed you. So with that meta-narrative, now I understand why Jesus says, when they smack you, turn the other cheek. When they take your clothes, give them more clothes. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, offer them your cheek, offer them your clothes, offer them your money, offer them your love, expecting nothing in return. Why is he saying that? He's saying, because my life is an offering, and your whole life should be an offering. Why? Because if everything in your life is there to be given, no one can steal from you. If your joy is there to be given, no one can take your joy. People say, oh, you know, this person stole my joy. If they stole your joy, then your joy wasn't there to be given in the first place. You don't break into my house. My heart is not locked up. Open borders in my heart. There's no wall here. You can come on in. Jesus is in there. (laughs) Just a quick, like, whatever. Oh, my gosh. So inside and outside the edges... I close with this. When we're outside the edges, when we're living outside the edges, the edges that we're supposed to be living in is gospel hope. Every time we respond to any situation, we're supposed to respond to the situation under the meta-narrative of gospel hope. When we go out of bounds and we respond in our moment... And we don't respond according to the one-day hope that's coming, but we respond to the present reality of what's happening. This is why he told us to walk by faith and not by sight. Because if I walk by sight, I'm only going to be handling my moment. But if I walk by faith, I can pull on a moment that's yet to be. Okay, so if I'm functioning according to my moment, what is it going to produce? It's going to produce revenge. And it's even worse than revenge, it's going to produce investing. I won't give to you. I'll invest in you. When you give, Jesus says give, expecting, but when you invest, you expect a return. So when I'm living according to my moment all the time, when my schedule, my money, my opinions, my personality are all at the fore of what I'm doing, All I'm going to do is I'm going to be finding holy ways to get revenge, and it will be following Jesus. I'll turn the other cheek, but then act like I got you by doing it. You know what? Hit me here, too. See what I did? I got them. I turned the other cheek, and they didn't expect me to. And we'll turn that into an Instagram post hashtag smack me once I'll let you smack me again can't get me down hashtag still standing hashtag bounce back hashtag try to hit me again hashtag turn the other cheek hashtag ask me to go the extra mile hashtag five miles like we'll do all this stuff we'll use Jesus to do the same thing with Jesus' rules that he's telling us not to do with ours we're investing I'll turn my other cheek not as an offering but as an investment and now I'll tell you remember the day you hit me twice you owe me now it's revenge using gospel. It's turning gospel into legalism. Yeah, you know what? They're telling me to go one mile, I'll go two just to shut them up. No. Jesus is gonna be like, you didn't go any. You think you went three, you didn't go any. You were using it and lording it over them. You were hurting them with my rules. You turn the other cheek to live an offering life, not to make an investment, not to get revenge. You go the extra mile because Jesus is going the extra mile, not because you're trying to get back at them. You give them more clothes because Jesus hung naked on a cross, not to get them, not to show them that you're better than them. What will we say? We'll quote the one verse that we know. I just want to heap hot coals upon their head with my kindness. Let God worry about what he does with our obedience to him. Just obey Jesus. Don't even make it about the person who's wronging you. We become obsessed with the people who we act like. They don't matter to me at all. But you keep talking about them, so I'm starting to think they do. Psh, this person doesn't matter to me. My coworker doesn't matter to me. She thinks she matters to me, but she doesn't matter to me. Then shut up about her. For two seconds, you're talking about her more than you talk about anybody else. I'm starting to think you're obsessed with her. If they don't matter and Jesus matters, talk about him and stop acting like you're fine when apparently You're not. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. But if we respond to our moment, we'll always be seeking revenge and we'll always be investing. But inside the edges, when the gospel hope is the narrative and our response happens inside of the narrative of gospel hope, what we reveal when we're wronged is mercy and service. Because we're obsessed with Jesus. Jesus is what God is like. Please get tired of hearing me say that. And God is the kind of person who, when he's invested with power, rules by getting on his knees and washing feet. He flexes his muscles by going to a cross and saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't intimidate the sinner. He intimidates the powers wreaking havoc on the person. Stephanie and I were joking about this yesterday. There's that man in the temple who's filled with an evil spirit. And the evil spirit only starts chirping when Jesus shows up. And Jesus casts the evil spirit out of the person. Notice, Jesus doesn't cast the person out of the synagogue. He casts the evil out of the person. I would just love that to hit home for everybody. Jesus doesn't remove... An evil person. He removes the evil from the person. He knows how to see the difference between you and the sin in you. But then they criticize him for doing it. And if I'm Jesus, I'm going to be like, do you guys realize there is a demonic presence in here and it didn't say anything until I showed up? That means it's okay being around you all. It's been perfectly fine being here the whole time. And it's only when I show up that it feels uncomfortable. What does that say about you? But Jesus doesn't say that. And I wish he would once, but he doesn't. He just loves the person and walks away, which is more amazing than him walking on water is him not needing to get the last word. I, that is the biggest, bigger than the resurrection is him not needing to get the last word because when he rose from the dead, he didn't go to Jerusalem or Rome. He started weeding a garden by himself. You know how much smack I'd be talking at that point? And he's like, mm. nice rest after being dead. I don't like the way this, this uh, flower bed looks. That's not what I would do. Why is he so? Why is he so content not needing to get the last word? Because he's filled with the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit, and he knows that justice is coming. He doesn't need to get it now. It's coming. The last thing that I want to say is this. In the moment when you're stuck between the two narratives, when somebody has done something to you and you're stuck between the narrative of knowing one day God is going to make everything right and the moment where everything feels so wrong. Have we been here? When you're stretched like that, think of what it means to be stretched. When you're stretched far enough, you tear, yes? When Jesus died, I want you to forget everything that I've said now and remember this. When Jesus died, he's on a cross and he's torn between our fleshly man and our new creation man. And he's being pulled between the evil of the world and the joys of heaven, right? He's torn. He's in between ground and heaven. He's in between two different kinds of people. He's being torn, and he's trying to reach both of them at the same time. And his flesh tears, but so does the temple. And when the temple is torn, what does it say? It says that the veil was rent from top to bottom, which is to let you know who's doing the ripping. We can't do the ripping. It didn't rip from the bottom up. It ripped from the top down. Heaven does the ripping but it says that it exposed the most holy place. The most holy place on this side of the resurrection, the most holy place in you, will only be exposed when you're torn. People will access the sacred in you the most when life has pulled you and yanked you in two different directions and you don't know what to do and you tear. That's the moment. When people like Jacob will be with you and say, oh, you're the house of God and I didn't know it. It's in the moment of being torn that the sacred in us is exposed the most. If we spend all of our life refusing to be torn, all they'll ever see is the best of what we can come up with. They'll never see the heaven that is just residing in us trying to get out. Let's stand to our feet. This is where we come to a table because this still, no matter how you preach it, no matter how much you laugh, this is where we need to be fed by food that's torn so we can learn how to be torn. So we come to baskets not filled with one loaf but filled with a loaf that's been torn. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would hover over this room for a moment. And that you would teach us to be okay getting torn. That you would teach us to be okay being pulled in different directions. That we wouldn't be obsessed with trying to figure out how to resolve tension. But we would let the tension tear us. So that people around us can see the most holy place. Where you reside in the center of our being torn. In that liminal space of being ripped And I pray, Heavenly Father, for anyone who's particularly going through a situation where they're being wronged right now, where where things are not happening in a just way, and I pray that you would give them the quiet security that passes all understanding at this table to stand in that moment and trust that the most holy place is going to be exposed. And if people don't see it in this life, they will see it in the next. They will. That's your promise to us. That's all we have to hold on to. And I pray that this table would remind us of that promise. I pray that this table would come at us from the future today. That it would be the future promise that, Jesus, you've been torn wider than we'll ever be torn. And you've been spilled with a greater mess than we'll ever be spilled with. And that the most holy place exposed in you envelops us and gives us food and gives us energy and invigorates us to be torn on behalf of the life of the world. And so we thank you that one day we'll stand before you and you'll say to us, you meant to kill me, but that was so that I could become bread. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that you fall on this bread and make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the reminder from the future that you're becoming bread for us and that we can become bread for others. And I pray that you would fall on this cup and make it for your people, the blood of the new covenant that doesn't take revenge, that knows that vengeance is yours. And we're here to show the world that one day wrongs will be made right by going the extra mile and turning the other cheek. And I pray that you would sanctify us. Forgive us for refusing to be torn. Forgive us for self preserving. Forgive us for not wanting to look like this bread that we're about to gratefully come and partake of. Forgive us for not wanting to be broken and not wanting to be spilled and not wanting to be like you. Spirit, lead us into the moments where we're supposed to be broken and lead us into the moments where we're supposed to be agents of putting things back together. We love you so much. And we thank you that on the night when you were betrayed, you became bread. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, Check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.